Miracy. I'll go back to drawing a distinction between a method and a process. So I don't think I have a method. I have a process. If we think of it as a process is like a 30,000 foot view of what you're doing and a methodology is the scaffolding that lives between your process and your outcomes. Welcome to Just Between Coaches, the podcast where we discuss all things coaching. In this episode, we're going to talk about why you should divorce your coaching methodology. Now, you might be thinking, wait, what? Divorce my methodology? But I've been using it for years. Well, that's exactly why we're going to dive into this topic and go deep with it and explore why it might be time for a change. I'm Melinda Cohen, and you're listening to Just Between Coaches. I run a business called The Coaches Console, and we're proud to have helped tens of thousands of coaches create profitable and thriving businesses. This is a podcast where we answer burning questions that newer coaches would love to ask a more experienced coach. I'm excited to have a special guest joining us to discuss this topic further, and with her extensive experience working with leaders in high-pressure situations, we're thrilled to have her insights and perspectives on why coaches should divorce their coaching methodology. Today, I've invited Constance Derricks to the show. Constance is a leadership coach, keynote speaker, author of the book, High Stakes Leadership, Leading Through Crisis with Courage, Judgment, and Fortitude, and the newly published Meta Leadership, How to See What Others Don't and Make Great Decisions. She's got a PhD in psychology and is an expert in the process of change in high stakes and crisis. Welcome, Constance. Thank you, Melinda. I am thrilled to be with you, and I'm so excited to share with your listeners why they should divorce their methodology. I know, what a crazy cool topic. I'm excited to get into that. But before we do, would you mind just sharing a little bit of your background with our listeners? Oh, sure. So my path appears a bit crooked, my professional path, but there's a through line. I used to be a stockbroker. I was a retail stockbroker for several years, a job I absolutely hated. But one of the things that intrigued me in fact, I would say it haunted me, was why smart people that had money made really bad decisions with their money. You would think that money is important to people, and, and it is. But I observed bad, irrational decision-making, not just in the clients, but my colleagues were doing similar things. And I began to suspect that the problem wasn't that people weren't smart or experienced. The problem might be that they were human. And so I began reading and studying books on decision science, but it didn't satisfy me. So I went to the psychology section. I literally spent about six months in a bookstore two or three times a week for an hour. And I was going back and forth between these two sections, trying to understand. This was before the field of behavioral economics was really born and certainly not well understood. So I quit my job. I went back to school. Ten short years later, I had a PhD in psychology and I had started consulting to executives while a graduate student, thanks to my generous professors. So here we are. With this topic, divorcing your coaching methodology, before we get into the idea of divorcing it, 
let's explore methodology for just a second because a lot of coaches, hopefully they've gone through some sort of coach training. While we are gifted with these skills and talents that make us great coaches, you know, we have to hone those skills and really channel them in intentional ways. And so a lot of coaches, when they go through their coach training, they may not have a specific methodology or do they? Help us get clear on what do you mean by a coaching methodology? So I draw a real distinction between methodology and process. So methodology to me is, it's like a procedural thing. First I do this, then I do this, then I do a 360, then I give you eight psychometric tests, and then I do this, and then I do that. And so it provides a lot of structure, and there's some benefits to that, obviously. What I prefer for people to use as they, especially as they mature and grow as coaches and are ready to go toe-to-toe with a CEO or a board chair, is to use a process. And the process is distinct because it's agnostic as to tool. It doesn't mean you don't have tools. It doesn't mean you can't reach for tools. But the coach becomes the intervention tool rather than a series of activities or scheduled events and things like that. So the work I do is often my clients refer to it and I refer to it as advisory. I'm advising them. So the process is establishing rapport and trust identifying the issues in the minds of the client, making a decision for myself. Is that enough to go forward? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. We agree on what our focus will be, and then we proceed to meet on some schedule. It depends because senior executives are busy. Usually I'm when I'm meeting with them, it's for an extended time, 90 minutes or two hours. And then I offer all of my clients unlimited access to me by phone or email, unlimited access. And when I'm coaching coaches and I tell them that, they pretty much fall on the floor and say, I can't do that. I'll be too busy. And I'm like, no, you won't. And they go, why? And I go, because they're too busy to call you every day. And if they're calling you every day, you got the wrong client. There's a very important selection process that needs to happen to shift from a more structured, method-driven process to something that's more process-driven. And coaches can choose what they want to do. People don't need to work the way I do. I work the way I do because it allows me the greatest degrees of freedom. You know, different people listening in, they're going to have different niches, have different styles, and so they'll create their own methodology. And even if they don't, I believe, if you don't intentionally map that out, you're going to naturally fall into some sort of rhythm or cadence of how you work with your clients. And that then becomes your methodology. So let's talk about this topic of why you should divorce your coaching methodology. It's like, wait a minute, I've got my rhythm. I found my stride. It's going well. I'm serving my clients. They're getting great results. Why in the world would I think about divorcing how I coach my clients? I'll go back to drawing a distinction between a method and a process. So I don't think I have a method. I have a process. If we think of it as a process is like a 30,000 foot view of what you're doing and a methodology is the scaffolding that lives between your process and your outcomes. What I'm saying is that um, I create the scaffolding Once I know more about what the situation is, but I never talk about it at the front end and I don't prescribe it at the front end. If you're doing that, it doesn't mean you're 
doing anything wrong. However, your business will grow more when you cannot be one of a group of people who can do ABC, but when you begin to be thought of as peerless, as without competition. When people start to say, get me Melinda, they don't say, I need a coach, go find me somebody that knows how to do these things, that gets great results, but get me Melinda. And this is a developmental path that we can travel as coaches. I didn't start out that way. I wasn't born knowing this. You know, I came to coaching as a psychologist. My first coaching assignment was, you got to go to Cleveland and coach this guy. That was my boss talking to me. And I went to one of my colleagues' office and shut the door and I said, what's coaching? I mean, I'd been a psychotherapist. So I did not grow up professionally in a structured format other than the one that was prescribed by the consulting firm I was with at the time. Later, I left the firm partly because I wanted to operate more the way I do now. I did that 12 years ago. And, um, and so now I don't talk about methodology. If someone says, what tools do you use? I say, I'm the tool. Mm-hmm. And that's scary. I want to acknowledge that if a listener is a new coach, it's sort of like, well, you learned how to do, you know, you're a trapeze artist now. You grab the bar, you can leap through the air and grab the next trapeze and it's great and your clients love it. And it's scary to think, well, you you know, don't do that. Or, And I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying here's an option for coaches to think about how to grow their business, how to grow personally and professionally. I'm not prescribing it for everyone. I'm I hope what I'm doing is offering it as a possibility. When a coach has found their rhythm in their process and their methodology, what are some of the signs that it might be outdated or in need of some sort of update? They're bored, bored with the routine, bored with their clients, have the feeling of Ugh, another 360. But I would say when you're bored and when your clients begin to see you as uh, replaceable, disposable. One, one guy, this was a long time ago, I won't say his name, but an executive at Bank of America, we were doing a lot of work there. And he said, you guys are like Kleenex. And I go, what? I mean, sounds insulting on the face of it, right? He said, well, I put, you know, if one of you goes away, I just pull another one out of the box. Wow. My reaction was, uh-uh, buddy. <laughs> Let me show you. I mean, I'm, I'm a little rebellious. You know, standardization is good in terms of quality and adhering to a code of ethics, but it's not good to be the thousandth coach who does this because then your client will end up comparing you and trying to work your fees down. And in my experience, that's not indicative of a good trusting relationship. A good trusting relationship is when the client believes, honest to goodness believes that you can help them achieve an objective, an objective such as they're responsible for revenue and you're going to help them increase revenue. If people think of you as a set of skill, you can do these things, but there are other people that can do those things, then the chances that they're going to say, get me Melinda are reduced. And I just see it as a developmental path for coaches and people can choose to develop in this way if they want. I have a few clients who are coaches 
and they grow their businesses by focusing on outcomes that are more about the business. They're about the leader as well. Let's make no mistake, leaders matter. Um, and they uh, they grow their businesses. Now, when we think about the developmental path, the coaches, when they, when they realize, mm, maybe this is out of date, what are some of the strategies for adapting the process that you use with your clients to better meet the needs of your clients, to help them get results, to stay relevant, to stay engaged, to stay lit up about the work that you're doing. How do you begin to adapt that? I guess the first thing I would say is that I hope that people wouldn't think what I'm doing is out of date. I hope what they would think is I can do this work differently than I'm doing it now. I think I can add more value and I can establish value better if I unhook myself from this um, very specific way that I've been working. Now, once you learn it and you know it, it's always yours. So I hope that coaches will think, I want to grow, I want to expand. So the path to that is divorce your methodology and to say, I'm going to have different conversations with people. I call them business development meetings. I know some people call them sales calls, whatever you want to call it's fine. But you've got a referral and you go and you meet with someone. Um, to have a different conversation. And the conversation is not about what you will do or what you know how to do. The conversation is about what's going on in their world, what they need, where they feel stuck, uh, why it's not their fault, <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be. And I'm guiding them away from a technical conversation and to a conversation about business objectives. Why is this an issue now? What's going on? Why do you think that's happening? I get them talking about their world, not my world. That's a big, big switch that I went through, that others have been through, you know, and it's not required that you make the switch, but it introduces a new world and possibility and it's super fun. And then by doing that, how do they begin to adapt the way they work with their clients once they do become clients? How do they adapt that process? Well, they adapt it by focusing, laser focusing on what the issue is. So it might be better to use an example. Let's say you're talking to a C-suite executive and, um, and they're saying, well, you know, this is happening and that's happening. And what you're hearing is misalignment on the senior team, right? This happens a lot to coaches where you're in an early conversation and you hear things that tell you that the alignment isn't clear. People aren't focused on a common goal. So at that point, I would say something like, what can you tell me about your strategy? Most of the time when you ask a senior executive that, they either shrug, sigh, or talk for 10 minutes and then shrug and sigh and say, I don't really know. (laughs) Or the one other option is they reach in their credenza and get out a notebook and blow the dust off it and proceed to show you an operating plan, which is not strategic. So at that point, I would say it sounds to me like the senior team needs to get on the same page, that there are disconnects. So I love the word disconnect, by the way, because it doesn't blame anyone. From that point, we would start talking about what we could do, and that would be a collaborative discussion. What have you tried? What hasn't worked? What have you seen work? And at some point, they're going to look at me and say, well, what would you do? And I say, we have some options. 
I always say we have some options. It doesn't matter what's in my head. I always say we have some options. By the time I've said the first one, the second one has come to me. So you you can see that this way of working is more without a net, right? What it does is it allows you to be in a very collaborative conversation with somebody with a big job who can make decisions about how to intervene in something. A lot of coaches are going to have a set of clients that they've been working with. They've got their existing clients. They realize that they want to up-level their business. They're stepping into their expertness and owning all that they bring to the table. How can they ensure a smooth transition when they're bringing on new clients in this new way of working with them and still maintaining that continuity and trust with their existing clients? I think that it, it happens more naturally once the coach gets comfortable with having a different kind of conversation. And the way that happens is you find somebody who's great at that and you engage them to help you. I find that it works well in a mentoring sort of role. And there are people that do this. They teach you how to have this different conversation. You can practice with them. It's easier to switch to a different way of working inside a company when they don't know you yet. Once you're inside a company and you're a coach who does A, B, and C, you have a brand inside that company. And if it's a big company and you've worked with a lot of people, it's harder. It's not impossible. It's easier with new people to change the conversation. What makes it work better or worse is practicing the skills of having a different kind of conversation, getting feedback with somebody who's really good at it, and listening to them. Now, this is bringing up an interesting um, thought. We've been talking about divorcing the methodology when it's outdated, when it feels like we get bored with something, right? Like it's no longer working or producing results. And I'm thinking about one of my colleagues. And I mean, for years, he was known for a certain type of coaching, built a wildly successful business with that, was great at it, loved it, was still having a blast at it. And then, I don't know, some 15 years down the road after he'd been doing that other niche for a while, one element of what he was doing really stood out that said, of all the stuff I love doing, because I still love it, I'm not bored with it. It's not out of date. It's still getting people results. People are still signing up and they love it. But there's this one piece that I really love that piece. And he uh, he made that conscious decision to say, you know what? I just want to pursue that one piece. And he began to um, build a different brand based on that one piece. He then sold off the previous business. It's still wildly successful, but he sold it off because he made the choice. He's like, you know what? This is where I really want to spend my time. So it doesn't even have to be that it's out of date or no longer gets results. It could just be that as you go through your journey, as you've been working with clients over months and years, there's an element that stands out that says, you know what? This is where my sweet spot is. And so that might be another reason to quote unquote divorce your methodology. Like divorce has that negative. It's like, well, it may not be negative. It's just that conscious choice. So I want our listeners to really be mindful of that, that it just could be that natural evolution. And when you speak of that development strategy in your business, I think of that as well. And so, but let's go back to, as we're divorcing our methodology, what are some of the risks of switching to that different way of working with our clients? Well, the risks are that as you attempt to pivot yourself, that you will do it imperfectly in the beginning. You'll be a little bit awkward. And if you think about it, that's natural, right? 
So there is a, a period of time where mentorship, or I like to think of it almost as an apprenticeship, is important. So not firing all the clients you have or divorcing them, you know, but maintaining enough of your business in the old way as you move toward the new way. So think of it as having a, a transition period and an overlap. It also lets you test. And you might test it out and say, I don't like working this way. I like the way I've been doing it. And I would say rarely would coaching methodologies become outdated. There may be new things that are effective and and wonderful, and maybe they're well-branded and you want to adopt them. That's fine. But the only things that I think people really need to stop doing are using frameworks that are... Um, invalid. You know, when I hear somebody on stage talk about the lizard brain, I'm like, well, clearly you don't know what you're talking about. The triune theory of brain development was debunked a very long time ago. Or if you're using assessment tools that are questionable. Now, I just want to summarize some of the things that we've talked about today on this, what I think can be kind of a, a contrarian topic. We talked about the distinctions between methodology, process, and really understanding the different ways that coaches can show up and apply their skills in different settings. And I love how you described why we should consider divorcing the way we've been working with our clients and how it can help us exponentially grow our business when we can stand out, when we can really own what it is that we bring to the table. We got into signs that your methodology and the way that you work with your clients might be out of date. If you're bored, with your business or your clients, so you're like, oh my God, if I have to do this again. <laughs> that was a great one. I love that litmus test. So we talked about those signs and we talked about strategies to adapt uh, as you're evolving the way that you work with your clients. You gave us some really good insights about how to have different kinds of conversations and to put the focus in different places. And we even got into how to make that smooth transition because while we're doing this, we still have existing clients. And we're going to be bringing on new clients in this new way of working. And you gave us some good heads up about some of the risks uh, of switching to a new way of working. Constance, do you have any parting words for our listeners? Yes. I would say that coaching is one of the most privileged roles that a professional person can have. And there's great joy in watching people grow. But if the coach themselves is not on a perpetual quest to grow, if they're not curious and they're not willing to innovate how they work, eventually they'll, they'll be stuck. They'll be stuck with a brand that they themselves allowed to happen. And you can make that choice. But I think the people that are most interesting to clients are people that have breadth. And I would say, be a little weird. Be interesting. Nobody wants a boring coach. I love that. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Just Between Coaches. And also a big thank you to Constance Derricks for this great conversation. You can find out more about her at ConstanceDerricks.com. That's Constance, C-O-N-S-T-A-N-C-E, Derricks, D-I-E-R-I-C-K-X. Com. And she's got a free resource that you can download when you go to her website, Meta Leadership Self-Assessment. You'll find the link and the information for her website and a resource in the show notes. Constance, thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you, Melinda. This was really fun. 
I'm Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. Just Between Coaches is part of the Mayor CFM podcast network, which also includes such shows as For Better or For Work and Making It. Mishi Lance produced this episode. I wrote this episode together with her. Cynthia Lamb is our supervising producer, and Danny Emmy is our executive producer. Post-production was by Post Office Sound. If you want to listen to upcoming and previous great episodes on Just Between Coaches, please follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might be listening right now. And if you like the show, please leave us a starred review. It's the best way to help us get these ideas to more people. Thank you, and see you next time. Miracy. And so the tailor, having gathered together the beautiful scraps, began to sew. He stitched and he sewed and he sewed and he stitched. And by the morning time, he had made himself a beautiful coat. Now, when he wore his coat into the market, everyone admired it so much that the tailor decided to wear the new coat everywhere. And that's what he did. He wore it and wore it and wore it until it was all worn out. Or was it? In each episode of Once Upon a Business, Lisa shares a fairy folk or traditional tale and then extracts rich business lessons that are applicable for entrepreneurs, coaches, and course creators. Stories always take us on a journey from one place to the next. Sometimes this journey is literal, sometimes it's metaphorical, but always we find ourselves transformed. This story, The Tailor's Coat, originating from Europe, takes us through a literal transformation of the pieces of cloth and yet somehow teaches a powerful lesson. It does speak to a common entrepreneurial journey. Many of us start out working for someone else and give them everything we've got. Perhaps the tailor finally deciding to make something for himself is similar to the entrepreneurial desire to begin to create a business for ourselves. We take the scraps, the skills that we've developed, the experience that we've gained, and we launch our own business. I think it's an incredibly important skill for an entrepreneur, for anybody running a business, to be able to know that creating something out of nothing is always possible. And it's often the way forward because it's out of the scraps of what's been done before. It's out of almost the missing pieces that are not quite there that we can actually bring our creativity and bring our determination and bring our vision to create something really wonderful, really brand new and really beautiful. And then we can walk around the town with it. You know, we can be proud. We can step out and we can wear it until it's almost worn out, but not quite. To hear more of Lisa's stories and learn the deep lessons they carry, make sure you subscribe to Once Upon a Business wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you every other week with a brand new episode.